Welcome to Proven Improbable. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson, and joining us today is renowned author and veteran think tank futurist, Mr. Lowell Ponte. Thank you for joining us, sir. Hey, pleasure to be with you, Maurice. You know, for the listeners, Mr. Ponte has appeared on The David Letterman Show, The Today Show, and Good Morning America, just to name a few. Um, sir, your body of work is so expansive in breadth and depth. You know, you cover government, banking, monetary history, politics, economics. Uh, you cover so much ground with thorough analysis and empirical evidence. And most important to me, you offer solutions. Um, you know, it, when I look at investors, they usually are very keenly aware that there's a close relationship between politics and economics. And I brought you on the show today, sir, and thank you for coming as well, um, is to discuss your latest book, which is entitled, and I absolutely love the name of this title here, sir, is We Have Seen the Future. And it looks like Baltimore, the American dream versus the progressive dream. What inspired you to write this book? Well, all six of the books I've done with Craig Smith have touched on the theme of progressivism, which is the great competing political social philosophy uh, in the United States, a philosophy that is rapidly undermining the American dream and changing much of what uh, we and, and free enterprise people believe in. The progressive dream began in Europe around the time of the French Revolution and the Romantic movement there two centuries ago, and it basically is a collectivist movement. The American dream is an individualist movement that believes in personal responsibility, private property, free market economics, and so on. Turn all of that on its head and you have progressivism. Progressivism doesn't believe in individuals. It is a collectivist movement. It views individuals only as members of groups and believes in group rights. It despises capitalism because capitalism takes power away from government. Progressivism wants to replace uh, everything else in our culture, including religion, uh, individual property and values and so on, with a collectivist view where government runs everything. And along with a governing elite, mostly of scientists, uh, simply controls everything about our lives. If you want an example, think of Michael Bloomberg when he was mayor of New York. Uh, in the name of protecting you, he was going to tell you how large a glass of soda pop you were allowed to have. Uh, it is a kind of hyper-nanny statism, if you want to view it that way, that believes you are not smart enough to run your own life. In fact, because it believes in paternalistic government, where government is the father, that's what paternalistic means after all, uh, then we are all the children. We are an infantilized culture who is here to be told how to live, to be told how to share our toys and other things we've earned. Uh, it is the wise ruling elite who is to redistribute our wealth, to redistribute our freedom, property, opportunity, and so on politically. And so we have this, this horrible crossing of... Uh, of politics and economics that began in force in 1912. What happened in 1912? Well, as today, there was a major split within the Republican Party. Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be to take back the White House that he had given to his good friend William Howard Taft. Taft did not want to relinquish the White House. And so they fought it out at a Republican convention. In the end, Teddy Roosevelt lost for the nomination that would take him back to the White House. And Roosevelt and his followers marched out chanting, thou shalt not steal. And what came thereafter? Oh, a, a Democrat progressive named Woodrow Wilson 
took over the White House. And within a year, Woodrow Wilson had given America the following, the progressive income tax, the Federal Reserve Board. By the way, the Federal Reserve, if you look at its charter, uh, was explicitly created, and they're, they're quite open about this, to create or to provide an elastic currency. That is a currency designed to replace that nasty old gold-backed solid money that the politicians could not print uh, out of thin air as much as they wanted. Every dollar they printed had to be backed by gold, and that constrained them, and they did not want to be constrained. And so that was the beginning of the end of the gold standard of solid money, of reality as we used to know it, what created America's initial prosperity, and has given us instead the world we know today, in which government gets ever larger and more paternalistic, intervenes in more and more of our lives. And now, if you look, for example, at the Democratic Party debates between open socialist Bernie Sanders and closed socialist Hillary Clinton, uh, you find... The discussion is, how much free stuff can we give you? How much of the country can we give you in exchange for your vote? In other words, elections become bidding wars. Yes, they do. And as such, uh, government is up for sale. Now, many would say government was up for sale anyway. The Republican frontrunner, as we do this interview, Donald Trump, could tell you that because he knew we had the best government money could buy because he bought a lot of it because politicians on both sides had taken huge amounts of money from him in exchange for favors. So we, we have, on the one hand, the, the beginnings of socialism and collectivism from one party. The problem with that, of course, as Craig Smith and I have noted, is that it creates a thing called donkey drag. Once you have one of the two parties committed to destroying capitalism, to ending customary property rights and freedom in the country, then what is an investor to do when you know that in each next election, that party could take over and begin expropriating what you make? Uh, it means that you will now be more defensive. You will invest less. You will hire fewer people. And so you create a kind of death spiral for capitalism here as more and more investors do what our ancestors did. Our ancestors simply picked up from the lands they were and moved here. Well, they moved here seeking opportunity and freedom. However, the U.S. is now being turned into the very kind of country that they, their, our ancestors fled from. Yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't state that any better than what you do uh, right here is is that we have forgotten our roots. You know, when I listen to what you've just the narrative you've just provided, I listen to just in the streets. I listen to the common person talk about voting, who they're going to vote for and why they're going a certain direction. And I'm amazed at the ignorance. And I do want to make sure I'm, I'm explicit on this as well. Ignorance means that you simply don't know. It doesn't mean that you're smart or stupid, but they're completely completely ignorant of the Constitution. Uh, they're, they're, as you mentioned earlier, social programs. We're, we're selling our votes to whomever is going to give us what social program entitlement we want and not realizing if you did a word search in the Constitution, you won't find Social Security. You won't find Medicare. You won't find Medicaid. But this is what everyone's voting about. Not in, fact, in fact, you will not even find the term political party. <laughs> that as well. <laughs> the founders did not like political parties. They described them with the term faction, meaning political parties tended to divide us rather than bring us together. And God knows that's how they tend to rule, by divide and conquer tactics of one kind or another and by fear. 
Absolutely. We've created an atmosphere of tremendous uncertainty when we did away with the gold standard, for example, and replaced it with a piece of fiat money, which is to say a piece of paper that has value only because the government has issued an order giving it value and declaring it to be legal tender. Uh, you created a world that politicians can manipulate almost to infinity. Uh, today, for example, the U.S. dollar uh, has the purchasing power of about two pennies worth of a 1913 dollar before we implemented the Federal Reserve. That's just pure theft. So, so they, they've stole about 98% of the value of your dollars. Yes. We, we have calculated in another book that that theft adds up to about $220 trillion over the history of the United States. That's how much has been stolen from taxpayers, working people. Oh, and when I say taxpayers, understand the government now deliberately uses inflation as a form of taxation, something we talk about in an earlier book called The Inflation Deception, Six Ways Government Tricks Us and Seven Ways to Stop It. Uh, simply by printing money, they, they don't even need to tax you anymore. This is why the government is not all that concerned about the fact that 17 to 19% of our economy is black market, is people dealing in drugs, prostitution, uh, John the Carpenter making cabinets and being paid under the table by Mrs. McGillicuddy down, down the street. All those things no longer matter because the government is manipulating the money directly. And what that means is you may think you're really smart because you didn't pay taxes on the money you have hidden under the floor uh, beneath the back closet of your house. But in fact, you're being taxed every day on that. You just don't know it. Because every time the government prints money, where does the, that money get its value? Why it gets it from stealing the value from your money. From the current purchase, yes, from what you currently have. And, and so it's bleeding to death those dollars that you worked so hard to earn in one way or another. Uh, you just don't realize you're being taxed. You just wonder when you go down to the store with them why they only buy half as much as they did a few years ago or why hamburger now costs more than steak did a few years ago and so on. Well, that's all a function of inflation, and that is the prime form of taxation in the government nowadays. Uh, except, of course, for the targeted taxation that the government uses against the ideological enemies. And, of course, capitalists are generally ideological enemies, unless they're crony capitalists, like, say, Donald Trump. And they have had special privilege to build things in big cities and so on that other capitalists did not have. That all comes from being very close to the government. And so on the Republican side, we're no longer a capitalist country. Uh, and on the uh, liberal side, if you want to call it that, the progressive side, we're no longer a free enterprise country. We are far down the road to a collectivist system. Today in America, 49.5% of every of American households have someone living there who gets a special government benefit check of some kind, other than Social Security or Medicare. If you count that, then we are overwhelmingly down that road. Yes. And, and we have seen the dollar uh, become more and more insecure as a currency. Oh, you can still buy things with it, but that will not last much longer. Ask Denny Hastert, former Republican Speaker of the House a few years ago, who was arrested for taking his own money out of his own bank account and giving it to someone who was blackmailing him. <laughs> well, he was arrested for that. 
Why? Because he had not filled out the appropriate government forms uh, your bank now is, is forced to get from you, forms that, this is part of the, the act of your bank spying on you routinely now that the government requires. One of 20, one, 20 reasons we give uh, in one of our books called Don't Bank On It, The Unsafe World of 21st Century Banking, one of the 20 reasons why you are now insane to have a bank account. I mean, it is the worst possible place you could put your money, a higher risk place than almost anything else you could think of, other than just dumping it out on the street in front of your house. Uh, and Well, you know, if I may stop you there for a second, you know, I speak to bankers all the time regarding the FDIC and their ignorance regarding the FDIC. Um, I, I wrote a blog regarding that very subject matter, and, uh, and I also made them aware of capital controls. You'll be surprised how many bankers really don't even aren't aware of it and the average common citizen again they're not aware so for the listeners if you're not aware a form of capital control would be when you go to your atm machine you can only withdraw so much currency out of your uh, out of the atm machine thereafter you're gonna have to make a phone call although you put in your pin number and you've identified who you are <laughs> you're limited in what you can do but what you're sharing is and what you shared in um don't bank on it is this won't be limited to the atm machine this is going to go to you stepping into the bank, and you're going to be limited on your withdrawals. Is that not correct? Oh, that is definitely already happening. In fact, that's what inspired us to write this book a few years ago. Uh, Craig Smith, my co-author, a uh, person you see almost every week with Neil Cavuto on Fox Business or Fox Main, um, he had a good friend who went into a bank where she'd banked for 20-plus years. All the tellers and the clerks and the guards smiled at her and greeted her when she came into the bank by name. And then one day she came in and said, I need to withdraw $25,000 in cash from my account. And they looked at her in horror and said, you can't do that. You know, we, we don't even have $25,000 laying around it. If we did, you know, we need a note from whoever you're withdrawing this money from and so on. Now this is a 40 year old woman and she said, what do I need? A note from my mother to withdraw my money from my bank account? <laughs> uh, yes, you virtually do now. Uh, and anytime you withdraw any significant, well, actually under the law as it now exists, uh, in fact, it's a law that Denny Hastert ironically helped create to fight terrorism. Any unusual transaction you engage in, Maurice, has to be... Uh, explained on a form to the government. I mean, if you walked in with $500 in cash in a way that you don't do ordinarily and give it to the, put it into your bank account, that has to be explained. The bank can be held responsible for not recording that you engaged in an unusual transaction. You know, in cash. We, we are headed rapidly into the cashless society. Yes, we are. You know, when you made reference to the uh, um, recording your transactions, wasn't the, there something in the Obama uh, health reform bill that basically stated any transactions greater than $600 had to be recorded on your taxes? Uh, if you're, Are you aware of that by chance? Not of that, but I'm not at all surprised. By the way, you mentioned the FDIC. Before that slips away. Yes. To, to appreciate the origin of that, once upon a time, banking began in ancient Babylon. People were not saving money. They were saving their grain for planting the next spring. It was saved in the temples of Babylon. 
Our very word money comes from the fact that in ancient Rome, the mint, where they struck Roman coins, shared a wall with the temple of the goddess Juno Moneta, M-O-N-E-T-A, the guardian goddess, to the Romans. I won't go into the long history of that, but in any event, the word money then came to be associated with those coins struck in, the, in Rome's mint because it was part of the temple of Juno Moneta. Um, I mean, money, money, money has touched our lives in all kinds of interesting ways like that. One that fascinates me, oh, oh, something I think you and I had a conversation about. Roman soldiers also received a very complex kind of pay every year. Part of that pay was their salt ration because after all, the human body needs a certain amount of salt to function. Uh, the Roman word, or the Latin word for salt was sal, S-A-L. And so that part of the pay was known as their, the salary, the salt ration received by Roman soldiers. So if you're receiving a salary today, that's where that came from. In our own country, ever wondered where the word Dixie came from? Yes, I'm aware of it, but do please share it with the audience. Uh, back in the 1830s and 40s in the United States, the most common currency in the South was one issued by a private bank in New Orleans. New Orleans had, of course, originally been a French city. And so this bank, the money that they issued included uh, French labeling. The standard currency across the South then was the $10 banknote of this bank. And the word 10 in French is dix, D-I-X. So the notes that the South came to be identified with as their money came to be called Dixies. <laughs> the South came to be called Dixieland. And eventually it just came to be called Dixie, period. I mean, uh, so this is how money can affect us in some surprising ways. It all came from putting D-I-X-10 in the corner of a banknote in the 1830s and 40s. Uh, you know, I'm always fascinated with, with monetary history because it gives you an insight to the past as well as to the future. And when you put that all together, it's uh, it, it's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with the listeners. Oh, you can go on. For, for example, they still measure gold in jewelry in grains. That's not an accident. That goes back to the banks of Babylon, where grain was calculated in grains. Like what is called a grain in money weight is basically the weight of a grain of wheat. Where did we get the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation? It was one of the things that people needed in the wake of the Great Depression, especially after they had seen their bank accounts vanish. So it was a form of reassurance, but money had disappeared before in the Western tradition. In England, for example, twice the rich people had been saving their money in the Royal Mint, uh, or in another royal exchequer office, and twice the king simply took their money. And so out of outrage, they began seeking other places to store their money, their gold coins and the like. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth were notorious for debasing the money, that is, calling in the gold coins, then mixing, melting them down, mixing them with base metal, and then issuing a new coin that had far less gold or silver in it. Uh, and fact, isn't that really what we've done with Keynesianism? <laughs> oh, of course, of course. Uh, I mean, that's what inflation is all about, where the government deliberately finds ways. I mean, I mean, money, remember, as we have it today, is not real at all. 
this is why, I, I mean, it is a faith-based currency that operates by how much faith you have in it. The U.S. dollar today is backed by nothing except, of course, the full faith and credit <laughs> of the United <laughs> States government. Well, that is, it's, it's a promissory note from politicians. And whenever politicians need money, they basically encourage the Fed, in conjunction with the Treasury, to simply conjure more money. For example, since the 2008 financial crisis, they've conjured, what, $8 trillion out of thin air. Just poof. Uh, when Richard Nixon broke the last link between the dollar and gold, which was the link to the euro dollar. In other words, Americans could not legally own gold at that time, but Europeans could. Correct. And European central banks uh, had an arrangement with the U.S. that if they build up a big pile of dollars, they could trade it for gold. Well, Richard Nixon had done a whole lot, as Lyndon Johnson had, of uh, this magic money generation to fund the Vietnam War. And so suddenly in 1971, with the government of France just about to say, you know, we've got enough paper dollars that we can clean out Fort Knox uh, and take all of that gold from you, the French have never entirely lost their love of gold. Um, Richard Nixon said, well, we could either lose the gold or I can break that convertibility right now. And in 1971, Nixon did exactly that. The gold almost immediately, or the dollar, pardon me, almost immediately lost a third of its value. Uh, what had been worth a dollar in 1971, by 2010, you would need about $6 to buy the same goods. I mean, that's how fast the, the currency deteriorated after that. You know, that's a great point you make as well. When I when I share that with um, just listeners, uh, when they voice their complaints, I make them aware that, and you touched on it earlier, that inflation is the expansion of the currency, but the effects are higher prices. But I don't say, I make them say that, the, I make them recognize, I should say, that there's a difference between price and value. Because an apple in 1971 cost probably a nickel. How much does it cost today? And then did the nutritional value increase? No, your currency got depreciated. And uh, you, you're, you're hitting on so many great points here that I... Well, well, something people forget when they talk about economics, economics is a social science. Yes, it is. If you talk to a chemist or a physicist, they will tell you psychology isn't a real science. It's just made up. In fact, there's a huge controversy right now emerging in the world of psychology because they find that a lot of the studies that have been done cannot be replicated. And replicability is, of course, the, the gold standard, if you will, for whether a scientific conclusion is real or not. But the point is, economics is a social science. And a lot of that science is, how much are people willing to buy for a piece of paper called a stock or a bond? Uh, how much are people willing to buy for a Cabbage Patch doll that you fight for one Christmas and don't even care about the next? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot. We, we have a society in which more than half of marketing or sales uh, are not necessary. They're not necessary for food or survival or anything else. Uh, they are uh, appealing to some other aesthetic or trend or style or whatever in people. And people are willing to spend their money for it. Mm. Uh, and so how do you get people to value things in an appropriate or reasonable way? That's one of the big uh, perennial challenges. Yes, it is. Because people's idea of what has value and what doesn't 
is constantly changing. And a whole lot of our economy is dedicated to imparting value to things that may have no real value at all. What, what does it mean, for example, when you have people uh, willing to pay huge amounts of money for paintings by a particular artist? Is he really a great artist? Well, as long as you have a market of people willing to buy that artist's work, you can say it's like any other investment. But we've seen markets like that dry up overnight. I mean, th this is what makes economics so fascinating. Well, you know, what makes it, in, in addition to that, if I may, is you, we've discussed the Federal Reserve. So you have non-elected officials essentially trying to determine those behavior patterns. And they're never ahead of the curve. They're always reactionary, aren't they? Well, they almost have to be. But remember, they're also trying to, I mean, who do they serve is, is, I guess, a way to put it. The original mandate of the Federal Reserve was they were supposed to keep the dollar stable. And they uh, failed there because so it's that was relatively easy when you had gold behind the dollar because you had an international system in which every currency was really every other currency because they were all denominated in gold. So a dollar was a franc, was a pound, and so on. Uh, and you had a great deal of, of economic stability and peace, for the most part, in those times. You would have market crashes, but they'd tend to be very short-lived. Mm -hmm. The market would be back to normal within a year or so. Uh, unlike what we've had today, we're still in the recession that officially was recognized in 2008. It's coming upon us. And that's because the government was trying to manipulate uh, commodities, in that case, housing. For example, under Jimmy Carter, who, in my opinion, is the center of evil, locus of evil in the modern world, uh, Jimmy Carter imposed a law called the Community Reinvestment Act. It was essentially a law to redistribute wealth in the society by ordering banks, banks that depended desperately on the, bank, on the regulators the government had over them, threatening them with hyper-regulation and limited ability to market things unless they made large numbers of loans to groups favored by the Democratic Party. And so the banks felt forced to do that. They issued many billions of dollars worth of loans. They did it to people who the bankers themselves called ninjas, meaning they had no income, no job, no assets. Ninjas. Uh, they were bad loans from the outset. The bankers knew these did not comply with the normal historically proven standards where you try to get 10% down or 20% down from someone. So they have a reason to, uh, to keep paying the mortgage that you've issued them. You know, isn't it ironic as well in this same scenario, those that at the really weren't, I hate to say it in a bad way, but based off of their merit, weren't deserving of a home because of their credit worthiness and their income. But when you get something that you truly don't deserve, it's funny how fast you lose it as well. And those were the ones, those same individuals, their incomes couldn't support the, the, the house, their, their mortgage, as the escrows changed. And uh, it created a, a, in a, a ripple effect to where we are today, would you say? Well, this is what happens when the government feels paternalistic. It sits there and says, we are looking down morally on the rest of society, and we are going to decide politically who deserves what. And we're going to see that everything is divvied up so that those we deem deserving will get 
and those we who, who we regard as greedy, selfish capitalists and so on will have everything taken from them. And this totally distorts the natural economics in the society. It always fascinates me that uh, the same liberal or progressive who will say, oh, I care about the snail darter. And I care about the three-inch-long fish that caused us to cut off water from the Central Valley farmers in California. And I don't want the environment changed at all. They don't realize that the economy itself is an ecosystem, that it is an environment. And if they go in and begin distorting the pattern of investment, lending, saving, and so on, they wind up destroying the natural ecosystem of the economy. And yet they do that willy-nilly without a thought. Uh, and that's what Jimmy Carter was doing. You know, forget who was getting the loan. The problem is simply they were a bad risk. It was clear that if anything went wrong, these people would not keep paying their mortgage. Therefore, the mortgage was insecure. Therefore, the bank profit from the mortgage was insecure. By the way, this itself has some longer roots that you need to understand when we talk about the FDIC. And that is, remember that I was talking about how the king's had taken away the wealth from some of the wealthy in London centuries ago, mm -hmm. around the time of Henry VIII. Well, what did the wealthy do? They looked around and said, who has the capability to protect gold and silver? Why, of course, it's the goldsmiths. They have their own safes. They have their own guards and so on. So let's go and pay them a small fee and have them protect our gold so that we don't have to do it. They took it to the London goldsmiths, not realizing that the London goldsmiths were very shrewd people, shrewd in the sense that they were always looking for ways to get more wealth out of things. And the London goldsmiths quickly noticed that, uh, you know, count so-and-so gives you a thousand gold pieces and you give him a paper receipt. And then you sit wondering, when will he come back with the paper receipt? And it turns out he never comes back. If he wants to buy something, he gives the paper receipt from you to another person. He has turned that into money. And so you almost never have to worry about people coming back and asking for their gold back. And so said the goldsmiths, why are we just letting this stuff sit in our vaults? Why don't we lend it out at interest? Since nobody's going to come back and ask for it anyway. You, you can see there are the, the seeds of something very frightening here. Yes, you can. Uh, and, and what that means is we saw the birth of what today we call fractional reserve banking, where your bank can't really give you your money back if very many people come in and ask for it because they brought it in and lent it back out. You remember the movie It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart? Absolutely. Where he was a banker. And as a banker, there is a run on the bank. Everybody comes there and says, we're afraid your bank is going to fail. Give us back our deposits. And Jimmy Stewart says, well, well your money isn't here, Jim. We lent it to Betty, who will try to pay it back to us as best she can. And so, uh, and this is the system we've gotten into. The average bank in America today has between two and 10 cents for every dollar of deposits. Now, please, please repeat that again. How much? Somewhere between two and ten cents. That, that is absurd. The government is trying to require the bigger banks to have at least ten cents. But traditionally, they only have two pennies for every dollar of deposits in their books. So if everybody came down at once, 
you, you remember when we were kids uh, in colleges, there was always that, that smart engineering student who said the toilets have worked well here for a hundred years, but I figured out that if everybody on the campus flushes their toilets all at once, it'll overload the system and the pipes will explode. And the engineering kids would then work out exactly which toilet should be flushed when to blow up the system. Well, you can do that with banking. If everybody came down and said, we want our money back right now, if you have what's called a run on the bank, you have a world of trouble because the bank has nowhere near enough money to pay everybody back at one moment. Now, of course, they have more money today for reasons we could get into because thanks to Barack Obama, he is now formally at the G20 that happened down in Australia a year ago. Uh, he has formally agreed to the concept of the bail-in that was accepted in Greece, in Cyprus, now in much of Europe, in Australia, and so on. The concept of the bail-in is uh, normally you would think that your bank account is yours. But if, in fact, the government has to penalize a bank, if the government needs money from a bank, uh, how does it get it? Oh, it just now declares that your bank account is part of the bank's assets that can be used to pay that off. And there we have theft again. And there we have theft. So in other words, your money is incredibly insecure in a bank today if anything becomes unstable with the bank. And the banks are in worse and worse shape. In any event, the way people were protected uh, from this fear of a bank run and they, their money just vanishing the government of the 1930s implemented the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which adds on top of fractional reserve banking the magic of fractional reserve insurance. Yes. Now, now why do I call it that? Because uh, suppose we did have a major crash in the economy today. Could the Federal Reserve cover it? I noticed in your very fine uh, uh, essay on this, uh, you said that your account would be covered to $250,000. Well, if all you have is one account or two accounts or whatever, yet most people don't realize that $250,000 does not apply to accounts. It applies to institutions. Uh, what that means is, I've, I've talked to people who said, well, I know it says 250000 Lowell, but but I was careful. I was smart. I took my half million dollars and I broke it up into four accounts. So I've now got four accounts in that bank. And if each of them is protected to 250000 I have no problem. And I, say, oh, and I say, go back and read more carefully what the FDIC says. It will assure, insure 250000 per institution. Meaning, if you have, it doesn't matter how many accounts you have. As soon as you... What you had in there gets to 250000 That's all they're guaranteeing. If you have another 10 separate accounts with 100000 each, the FDIC has never failed in its history to cover that. But legally, it could. It could just refuse to pay. Now, here's the main problem with the FDIC, though, apart from that little thing most people don't know. Uh, and that is, we figure in a normal, serious crisis, the most the FDIC could muster on any given day, its assets, its backing security, is in the range of 25 to $60 billion, which you would think would be a lot of money, except 
BFDIC, you use the figure 9 trillion. We in our earlier research used the figure 7 trillion. But let's say at minimum, they are insuring $7 trillion worth of accounts, and they're doing it with less than $60 billion. You will notice there's a slight disparity. <laughs> <clears throat> Actually, we figure in the next to most dire possible situation, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury would step in, and in the short run, they would lend the FDIC up to half a trillion dollars which would be enough for most banks except the top five. But the difficulty is, at half a trillion dollars, that means the FDIC is able to protect one out of every $14 that it claims to insure. So if your dollar is not, is, is part of the other 13 fourteenths of dollars, uh, you could be out of luck very easily. <clears throat> and when, now, when you mention luck, that means food, Mortgage, gas. That's what you're referring to. And I want to make sure listeners. Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I hope people realize that half of all the bank accounts held by Americans, half of them are held by just the five biggest banks Bank of America, JP Morgan, and so on. Um, Wells Fargo. You go beyond those five, but, but if even one of those five banks' cap collapsed, the FDIC does not have enough reserve to cover it and might not be able to cover it, in fact, technically would not be able to cover it, with half a trillion dollars. No, they wouldn't. No. People don't understand how big the biggest banks are in this country, and people don't understand how big the biggest debt in the country is either. I mean, we're always told about the government being in debt, $19 trillion. Understand, that is roughly the entire gross domestic product of the United States for a year. That's the work of everybody, every company, every maker of anything or service provider. Uh, that's everything they make for a year. That's how deep we're in, in just in short debt. Now, in long debt, or, or what's called total debt, meaning debt private and public, total debt in the U.S. is about $70 trillion. $70 trillion is not the GDP of the U.S., $70 trillion is the gross domestic product of the entire planet, of all 7.5 billion people on the planet. You know, I'm, I'm shaking my head in, in disbelief, but it's very... No, no but, we're just, but we're just beginning. This is what people don't understand. Then, beyond that, there is the magic world of unfunded liability. Meaning, for example, every year, Social Security's liability increases by up to $5 trillion. The entire government spending is only a little over $4 trillion. But, but uh, the long-term debt incurred that a private company would be required to calculate, but our government keeps off the books. Social Security's long-term indebtedness increases by nearly $5 trillion a year. If you put together all of the unfunded liability, uh, it's in the neighborhood right now of at least $125 trillion. Now, that's still far short of where we really are, because if you have studied astrophysics, you know that nowadays they talk about a thing called dark matter in the universe. That is, by measuring gravity patterns in the universe, we know that there is a lot more matter out there than can be seen. 
In fact, there's about 10 times more matter in the universe than we actually see. And we can tell this by how gravity is operating. Uh, the dark matter exists in the financial universe, too, in a realm called derivatives. Yes, exactly. Derivatives uh, are basically documents of value created by all kinds of exotic private agreements. Uh, these private agreements could be mortgages. They could be mortgages relative to something else. They're, they're called derivatives because they are derived from exotic calculations of one thing or, or another. How, how much exists in the world of derivatives, which may or may not have anywhere near the value they claim to have, but on the books of the five biggest banks, there is approximately 210, maybe more, maybe more by now, certainly more than $200 trillion just in derivatives and just in the top five banks. That, that figure is, is so enormous. Now, now imagine the Federal Reserve the, or the FDIC trying to bail that out with its little half trillion dollars. Okay, you bail out 200 and it could be anywhere from 210 to 270 trillion dollars just held by the biggest banks on which the world economy depends. Then, on top of that, understand we don't really know how many derivatives there are because a lot of entities hide or semi hide them in the way they do bookkeeping. The estimates range from 694 trillion dollars of derivatives in the world economy up to, take a deep breath, Maurice, because some people may not have heard this before, up to $1.28 quadrillion. That, forget, about, <laughs> forget about trillion. Let, let's go to quadrillion dollars. I, I can't even begin to fathom that number there. Now, now, what that, well, let me give you an idea of what that would mean. Suppose even without going to the most extreme numbers, and we've calculated this from our first book, which was Crashing the Dollar, how to survive a global currency collapse. Craig Smith and I calculated that if you had to pay off all the debts of the U.S. today, you would need to take out your wallet and begin making a stack of dollar bills. By the lowest possible estimate, that stack would have to stretch from here to beyond the planet Mars, 35 million miles away at its closest approach. At the higher calculation, you would be able to make a stack of dollars that would go from here to the planet Venus and back from the planet Venus to Earth, and you would still have enough dollars in debt left over to make 11 stacks of dollars between Earth and the moon. <laughs> I mean, are we ever going to be able to pay off such a debt? The answer is no, no. of course, no. There is no, and understand, productivity in the West uh, it was honestly measured and then manipulated slightly upward uh, in January, February by the Federal Reserve calculations of the bank in Atlanta. Uh, they're the ones who oversee that. They say U.S. growth is at about 0.7% growth. Actually, it's much lower than that. Uh, about half, we, we have almost 94 million Americans who can't find or don't want to find a full-time job. And why would they? We have a society in which if you move to Hawaii today and file for welfare, they will pay you $60,000 a year 
in tax-free welfare benefits just to lay on a beach and go surfing. Mm. Uh, why would anyone want to work in a society like that? Uh, so this is the world where more and more people have the future paid for for them. They have all kinds of government benefits available. Uh, and that all comes ultimately from direct or indirect taxes on the people who work. This is why we talk about this phenomenon of donkey drag, which we calculate to be about 25%. In other words, the economy would be 25% bigger, 25% more employment and so on, if you simply eliminated America's new socialist party. Because that's how much fear having such a party in a position to take power in any given election puts into investors. They just don't want to invest in a country like this anymore. And so more and more of them are taking their investment overseas or to avoid the heaviest business taxes in the civilized world are keeping it overseas. And in other words, we're destroying our own economy. And you can see it in growth moving slower and slower and slower. You can see it in banks where now they have gone from zero interest rates to the beginnings in Europe of negative interest rates. What does that mean? Zero interest rates, understand, is remember those episodes of Star Trek where the Starship Enterprise would be in trouble and it would be in great danger, and they would say, just warp us out of here, Scotty. Go beyond warp nine. Okay, Captain, I'll do it. We're going to break up, Captain. And in any event, they then escape the danger, and everyone says, thank God we're safe, end of our problems, until Mr. Spock says, Captain, None of our starship, none of our star charts, none of our maps match up with anything out there. We escaped that problem back in our galaxy, but we're now in a galaxy nobody's ever seen before. We don't know how to find our way home. Now, that's what we've done with the economy. Because when the Federal Reserve, in order to save the economy from collapsing, uh, faced the, the cave-in in 2008, 2009. What did they do? They put their pedal all the way to the floor. And what that means in terms of the central bank is they reduced the interest rates as low as they could. They reduced the interest rate to zero, which meant basically you could borrow this money from nowhere that the Fed was generating for nothing. If you were a government, if you were a big enough corporation, if you were a wealthy enough Donald Trump kind of person, you could borrow for zero. Now, that obviously caused a lot of spending, but it also caused tremendous economic distortion. It meant that uh, mom and pop, who had been planning on uh, putting their money in the bank and getting reasonable interest on their bank account so that by the time they retired, they actually had some money, suddenly they were being paid zero, too. And how can and they're, and they're actually using this for their retirement in many cases. Oh, yeah. And, and that, now, now, even that did not prove to be enough. It, it's warped us out of the universe of capitalism altogether. It's caused tremendous malinvestment. It's caused an economic cronyism, whereas the socialists like Bernie Sanders, one hates to say he's right about things, but one point they make is this, and that is the crony capitalists today want socialism for themselves and capitalism for everybody else which is to say they want to be able to ha open the stock market casino, which had been running on this borrowed magic money, 
they have taken money that they could borrow for nothing, and companies have been buying back their own stock. And by doing so, they've elevated the price of the stock. So it looks like we have a healthy economy. But when you look at what's really happening, the companies are not making more product. They're making less. They're not selling to more customers. They're selling to less. Uh, the companies are basically failures, but they're still solvent because their stock is being bought back. Right. And its price is being bid up on borrowed money. And, and if I can interject on that, so if you look on their balance sheets, what you essentially see is it, the, the capital is not being deployed to research and development. It's going to debentures. And that will haunt them at a later date because they're not putting back into their company, in, in essence. All they're doing is increasing their stock price. And they're not even convertible debentures. No, I'm joking about that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but astute investors need to be keenly aware of that. Uh, that's why you never chase a stock simply because the price is going up. You look for valuation by looking in the numbers. And, and as, I, as I'm more or less you know, absorbing this as a sponge, everything that you're saying here, it's, 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 it's clear and evident that the United States is the – largest nation, I should say the no nation in history has ever had this much debt ever. No. And it's clear the path that happens is that the currency eventually gets debased. Monetary history shows that when you have a fiat currency. But let's look back to the beginning of what you understand what they're, what they're in the process now of doing is zero interest rate wasn't enough. They're actually going to negative interest rates. They're going below zero, which means if you have a bank account, you used to earn interest on it. Now you have to pay the bank interest to keep your bank account. Where this is going on in places like Sweden, guess what it's meant? People are out buying safes as fast as they can. Which leads to my next people question. People see that it's crazy to pay the bank uh, in order to be able to hold your money. So is that is that a recommendation that you have? Because we've covered a lot of the, the nuances of what's going on, and they're extremely pertinent for everyone to listen to. But the recommendation I have for my listeners, I, I, I wonder if they, they, they parallel what you recommend or the solutions are. What should investors or, or just a mom and pops person do? Instead of having their currency there in a savings account, uh, specifically with a zero interest rate or negative interest rate, what is an alternative? Well, we know what worked in American history. What worked was solid money. What worked was real savings. What worked was genuine investment and serving customers and so on. The more we can do to go back to that, the better we're going to be. And part of going back to that means instead of holding this unreal money, I mean, I know people have been rushing to cash in the U.S. dollar for safety. Sooner or later, the laws of economics have to kick in. Right now, as I say, the dollar has become a faith-based currency, which means it holds up as long as people believe in it. And especially a lot of foreigners still do nominally believe in it. But if that faith ever wavers, you could see the dollar explode overnight. I mean, not in a positive sense. You could see it implode. You could see the dollar vanish, dearly. Uh, this, this is the kind of thing that happened in Weimar, Germany in 1922-23. Uh, and in our early books, we, we talk at length about details of what really happened in Weimar. Uh, and that was spooky. You know, this is the world we all heard of where uh, at Friday noon you would get your pay and you would collect it in a wheelbarrow and you would run down to some place where you could buy something with it 
because the money was losing value by the hour. By the, I mean, you would go into a cafe in Berlin and you would order a cup of coffee for 5,000 marks. And by the time it came, it would cost 7,000 marks. Uh, there was a group of five or six school children from other countries who were studying in Germany, and they were getting stipend payments back from back home. So they'd be receiving payments from France and from the U.S. and so on. The difference being the foreign currency they were getting it in was backed by gold. It, wasn't, it was not just pure paper currency like what Germany was issuing. Correct. Germany was issuing money so valueless that in one heartbreaking story, a man went down to a government office and said, here is my entire life savings. I have worked for 40 years to save this money. How much is it worth? And the clerks turned away, embarrassed. They did not want to be the ones to tell him that his entire life savings now could not buy a postage stamp. Yeah. And we, you know, that's what happened to the money. You know, what's unfortunate is in the United States, we think that this that's not germane to us. That happens somewhere else. But this is monetary history. Uh, it, it's so it would, it would behoove the listeners to make the prudent decisions that you're referring to, sir. And well, well to, let me give you an example of what would happen. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the potential collapse of a major bank. I mean, like Wells Fargo or whatever. If such a bank collapse happened, the FDIC would have to rush in, as with the rest of the government, to stop the, the economy from totally disintegrating. And what they would do is promise everyone money immediately. And to pay that money, they would then just turn on the printing press full speed. Uh, they would, in, in fact, we had an interesting example with President Obama that economists swear actually happened. Uh, and that is, uh, he called his economic advisors into the Oval Office one day and said, I've had this great idea. My, my aides have shown me that in the Treasury laws, we have the authority to make coins of platinum in whatever denomination and quantity the Secretary of the Treasury specifies. And President Obama smiled at his staff and said, I think we should mint uh, at least 20 $1 trillion platinum coins to that, cover their debts. That was, I believe, in 20. Congress tried to uh, to, to get to bring that forward. Was that not 2012 and 2013? Two, two years in a row, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, he's, he's, yeah. he's periodically brought this up. But, but his economic advisors, even Keynesian liberals as they are, looked at him as if he'd gone insane. And as well they should. <laughs> because if he actually tried to issue such a coin to cover government debt, uh, the U.S. dollar would lose all credibility in every market around the world instantly. And that illusion of the faith-based currency that still works, it would just go poof. Even though what we're actually doing is not that different, at least we're doing it a little more slowly. And we're doing it in a very sleight-of-hand way. That is... What the government does is now it, it's printed money. It then gives the money to the banks on condition that the banks then lend most of the money back to the government. And the government then pays them nominal interest on that. Uh, so, the, so most of the money never actually gets into circulation. 
But one thing this demonstrated is John Maynard Keynes, who, who as I say, is the worshipped economist in the Obama White House and in some others. John Maynard Keynes said that we can control the business cycle and we can do it by uh, raising taxes when things are really good and by lowering taxes and quit passing out stimulus money when things are bad. And thereby we take this up and down cycle and we level it out. And so instead of the economy having spring and winter and summer, the economy should just be kept in permanent springtime all the time. And that affects the ecosystem, does it not? Yeah, this is an attempt to, to influence nature. Remember, the whole essence of progressivism is they believe that God can be replaced by man and that man with enough science and enough money and enough government power can create a new Eden, literally a heaven on earth. In fact, that's the language that uh, utopians uh, would talk in. And I know I know something about this because I am descended. My great grandparents were French utopian communards who came to the United States as socialists to create one of those heavens on earth like a manna or a nida, those little utopian colonies. Theirs was called Icaria. It brought about 1,500 people from France to the U.S. And after 50 years, it failed and died. All of them did. Because socialism is just not the way human nature works at this stage of our evolution. Uh, people actually want, I mean, as, uh, as Friedrich Bastiat, the great French philosopher and politician, once put it, uh, government is the great illusion by which everyone tries uh, to basically to get more than he puts in to the system, to live at the expense of everyone else. Uh, and that's what socialism is to this day. As Maggie Thatcher purportedly put it, for example, the, the uh, British prime minister, socialism works fine until you run out of other people's money. <laughs> and Bastiat had foreseen that, but Bastiat added, uh, you have to remember that government lives at the expense of all of us. And so when you have a society based on simply making government bigger and bigger and bigger, at a certain point, that, that self-destructs, because pretty soon, nobody wants to pull the wagon anymore. You know, if all that uh, working hard gets you uh, is that your money is taken away in taxes and regulation, then soon you have a society where everybody wants to ride in the wagon and nobody wants to pull the wagon anymore. And I, and I can see that happening. I've, when I moved to the United States at the age of six, I have seen a gradual, and then it's been a lot more for lack of better words, you're more progressive. <laughs> it's progressively oh, getting worse. Ask where you moved from. Uh, I was born a German citizen, actually. Uh huh. And um, coming to the United States, I saw the leadership that we had. Even though I didn't know anything about politics, but you, I, I saw Ronald Reagan as a leader. You know, and it, you just, it, it just is, is his his words seem to have eloquence and prominence throughout the world. I remember in Germany, even Germans then, when he spoke, they listened. Um, I've, conversely, I've gone back to Germany and uh, visit my family. That's not the repute we have now with the leadership we have and have had recently. So it's not just this administration, but just to see the demise of America in, in this what 30-year span, 35-year span that I've been here. Is, well, well, you remember we were talking about Weimar earlier. People need to understand that when the government decided in the wake of World War One that it was going to make everything work. The Weimar Republic was basically a socialist republic, kind of like Barack Obama's today. 
they decided they would apply socialist ideas and just print all the money that was needed to do everything. And what they did is they utterly destroyed the moral values of the country. I mean, there is a deep conjunction between economics and morality. And that conjunction is you're expected to, for people to work hard all their lives and to be thrifty and to be conservative and to be honest and to be prudent and so on. And when you take away their reward for having done that, uh, you've destroyed the entire basis that makes for a moral society. So what happened is in Weimar, all the good people, the people who saved and worked hard and so on, they got the shaft. And the people who won were the speculators. Uh, you know, I started telling you about these children from other countries who were there, for example. Imagine five or six children just with the money that they'd saved for a couple of months that their parents were sending them from home. I mean, what you might think of a few hundred dollars in today's terms. Those five children pooled their money and bought an entire block of apartments in Berlin. Because block of apartments people were living in because their money was real and the German money was not real. And so their money had tremendous value. Now, what happened out of Weimar, I hope people have seen movies like Cabaret because there you have the Weimar Republic destroying the morals of the culture, very much the kind of thing you're seeing Barack Obama doing today and Hillary Clinton and so on. And what then follows is someone rises up and says, I will set this right. And in Germany's case, that someone was named Adolf Hitler. And we know where that stepped went. In, who stepped in to a people who had been totally demoralized by an economic collapse. And that's what paved his way to power. And history repeats itself with, with scenarios just like that. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up as well. Um, you know, when you mentioned payment in full, uh, more or less. Well, by the way, I had ancestors who were German as well. They came from Stolp up on the Baltic. Well, we might be we might be related somehow then. <laughs> you never know. You never Ultimately, know. we're all related to some Eve who lived in northern Africa 100,000 years ago, the scientists tell us. If we go back far enough, absolutely. You know, when you're mentioning the back in Germany and the uh, you have children collectively – Again, bad use of terms here, no pun intended. But they, they pulled together the resources, and what they did was they purchased an entire block. And you said because they had real money. And what I want people to understand is that real money is gold. And what it's supposed to happen is, uh, with the current banking system, I should say, or a banking system, is that gold is payment in full. And when you talk about derivatives, the currency should be derived from the gold that the country has or the bank has. But that's not the case here. So, again, it behooves investors not to put everything into gold but absolutely to have gold and silver and have it outside the banking system so you make some great classic points where this 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 has happened several times not just once it hit its past is prologue it happens ladies and gentlemen so please do take uh the, the words of recommendations uh, here by mr ponte but yes sir please go ahead well, by the way, you had mentioned earlier our book, We Have Seen the Future and It Looks Like Baltimore, about the American dream versus the progressive dream. Why Baltimore? We used it as an example where progressives have ruled for the last 60 years. Uh, Baltimore, early in its history, was the second most favorite destination for people who wanted to move here to find the American dream. It was the high-tech center, the Silicon Valley of the early 1800s. Baltimore was where the first telegraph went into use. 
Baltimore was where uh, the first locomotive was built, where the first major railroad, the Baltimore and Ohio, was established in America. It was a center of high technology and success and entrepreneurship and so on. What is it today, after 60 years of uh, progressive rule? Uh, it is the heroin capital of the United States. One out of every 10 people there is a heroin addict. Uh, you saw the riots that occurred in April uh, 2015 mm -hmm. in Baltimore, where the mayor of the city, an ardent progressive, said, we also gave those who wish to destroy space to do that as well. And we work very hard to keep that balance. She actually told the police to let the mobs loot the stores. But then she turned to the street gangs of the city, the Crips and the Bloods and the Black Guerrilla family. And she said to them, I'd like you to protect Black-owned stores. And so as the New York Times reported, they did that. In one case, for example, uh, they stood at the door of a Black-owned store. And whenever looters came to rob it, they said, no, there's a Chinese-owned store down there, and there's an Arab-American-owned store over there. Go rob them instead. That, that's, that's so uh, that's so unfortunate. But, but you see, this is the thing. When law, when a respect for property, uh, when a respect for the police breaks down, and that's been encouraged by politicians who get their power from playing divide and conquer, mm -hmm. from hitting one racial, ethnic, or economic group against another, uh, you get a lot of that. Uh, years ago, I, I did a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, for example, in which I suggested something very simple. The Democrats were, again, saying they wanted more hate crime legislation. We want it to be a crime to, for anyone to invoke hatred against gays or whatever. Well, I said, fine, the Republicans should agree to that, but they should agree on one condition. And that is, while the Democrats add other categories, the hate crimes laws must be included, uh, must be expanded to include crimes based on class. In other words, anyone who expresses hatred for the rich, just for being rich, that too is a hate crime. Anyone who foments class warfare, pitting one group of people against another, that is also to be a hate crime. And you notice how very selective they are. They never would include class as a hate crime in these laws. Why? Because it would put every Democrat politician and every labor union leader out of work overnight. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything they say is, let's hate the rich, let's go soak the rich, let's tax the rich some more, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that, of course, creates an environment in which the rich just don't want to invest anymore. Which is a great point you make right there, if I may interject. Well, that's what happened to Baltimore. Well, you, you, you can throw you can say that about Detroit as well and Flint and other cities. <laughs> another, another of our books is about Detroit. Yes. We did a book on Detroit called The Great Withdrawal, How the Progressives' 100-Year Debasement of America and the Dollar Ends. Now, that was a few years ago. By the way, if, if any of your uh, audience would like an absolutely free and postpaid copy uh, of, of our latest book, We Have Seen the Future and It Looks Like Baltimore, we would be happy to send it to you. There is just tons of fascinating, mind-boggling information in this book. 252 pages. Uh, Craig Smith and I... Basically, this is our little mission from God, if you will. We're trying to arm people with information because we want to save the republic. We want to protect the Constitution. We want to preserve original American values and the American dream. And we do that by arming people like your audience with information. Well, and so we're happy to give you the book. Uh, if you'd like to get it, 
you just call a toll-free number. One, by the way, I'm sorry my voice is giving way on me. 1-800-630-1494 is that number. 1-800-630-1494. Or to help remember, think of Columbus sailing the ocean blue in 1492, but not quite. 1-800-630-1494. And just leave your name, number, we'll get back to you. We... uh, we want you, this is book number six in a series of 12 books we're doing. So this way we can inform you of future books in the series and, uh, and give you some idea of what books you have already uh, not yet seen. But we've worked very hard. We've, we've done about 1,500 pages of information for people. And there is almost no end to the complexity of how this interweaves. But what happened with the Republican struggle in 1912 that led to Woodrow Wilson's election was truly terrifying in the country. I mean, Woodrow Wilson was nominally a progressive, but he also plunged America into World War I, where we really had no particular interest being, cost the lives of more than 100,000 American boys. Uh, He was a racist. He was a eugenicist. Uh, eugenics, for those who don't know, the progressives believe that their moral authority extends to deciding who should be able to have children and who shouldn't. So eugenicists, so uh, progressives, for example, like uh, one of the uh, chief uh, Supreme Court justices, uh, actually said in a ruling, three generations of idiots are enough, sterilize her in a ruling, and a perfectly ordinary woman was forcibly sterilized Mm. so that she could have no more children. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, who is thought of as a northern intellectual, so beloved in Harvard and Yale and so on, and who did get his doctorate uh, at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was actually raised with a father who was a Confederate chaplain One of his earliest childhood memories was being introduced to Robert E. Lee by his father. His father was also a slave owner. Woodrow Wilson was a great advocate of slavery all his life, exemplified by the fact that the Republicans he replaced in power had integrated the civil service of the U.S. government. Blacks and whites were equal. He undid all that. Woodrow Wilson resegregated the civil service so that blacks had to go to their own restrooms, mm-hmm. eat in their own dining rooms, and mm-hmm. so forth. Uh, he was a major advocate of, of one of the most racist movies in American history, a movie glorifying the Ku Klux Klan. Of course, I have to say, I, I normally don't bring that much politics into these discussions, but speaking of the Klan, the Democratic Party has been able to carry out the most sophisticated political propaganda, bamboozling or hypnosis, probably seen in the history of the world. They have actually gathered 95% electoral support for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama from the political party, the Democratic Party, that was the party of the slave owners, that was the political party of the Ku Klux Klan, that was the political party of Jim Crow and Bull Connor, And yet they have fooled African-Americans into voting against the party of the great emancipator who freed their ancestors and for the party of the slave owners. 
Oh, it is one of the great propaganda coups in all of history. You're, you're preaching to the choir there. By the way, it's exactly the same as it was. Yes, that, that's... that's... It, it, it favors different races now. But apart from that, it uses the same tactics of racial divide and conquer. Pit one race against another and use that to get your power politically. They still do that right now. Yes, just they, they did 100 or 200 years ago. Yeah, I'm shaking my head as I'm listening because I... Uh... I, I, I don't mind sharing this at all. I'm a libertarian and I express my views and I share. Why, why, what a coincidence, I too. <laughs> and I share my views with uh, both sides and they look at me and they can't figure out, well, what are you? First of all, I'm a minority and then I share my views and like, well, wait a minute. So you're a Republican? No, I'm not a Republican. And then again, I, I share my views and make the distinctions. And, you know, you, you discuss Woodrow Wilson. One, one of the biggest things I always hear specifically right now is germane to the discussion politics is when you look in the constitution again one thing that you don't see is the irs and the irs was started essentially because of woodrow wilson and if you want to know what your largest expense in life is it's right there it's taxes it's not a home it is taxes and it, you you see the theft i would love to have my gross income mirror my net income but the reason it doesn't it has to do with exactly what you're referring to it's the progressive ideology the dogma and people buying into it that and they're not contributing as much as they're receiving, and here you have the demise of a wonderful, wonderful country. Um, how can we get it back? Well, you need to educate yourself. That's why we write and give away these books to arm people with information, so that you can see that if the government will not recreate the gold standard, and by the way, Ted Cruz is one who has advocated doing that in the current campaign. Uh, Ronald Reagan created a gold uh, commission to look into restoring the gold standard. You can at least create honest money in your own life by creating your own gold standard. You can convert, as you suggested, part of your income or part of your savings into gold, which is beyond the control of these politicians to manipulate by printing money. In other words, get away from basically anything denominated in dollars, if you can, and get away from anything that can be printed on a printing press in Washington, D.C. They can print more dollars and thereby make the dollars you have worthless. You know, they can create twice as many dollars as we have now. And all that will do, apart from the immediate benefit of the first person in government who has his hands on them, uh, all that will do is make everything cost twice as much, twice as many dollars, because dollars exist in a supply and demand balance with everything else. Um, so yes, you want to arm yourself with that kind of information. You also need to realize that taxes are much more complex than people realize. The government has played this game whereby it says, oh, we're going to tax the rich, but we're not going to tax you. Boys and girls, don't fall for that. I mean, what happens to the rich when they're taxed? The rich are the people who own the companies. What do they do? They just add that as an expense of doing business. Mm -hmm. They just add that onto the cost of what you buy. So in the end, they don't pay the taxes. You pay the taxes. If people had any idea how much hidden tax is in what, probably half the cost of a new car is hidden taxes that have been passed on to you. Mm. Uh, regulation is a tax. There was one analysis done a few years ago that is a libertarian you've probably seen. It was written up in Reason Magazine, where I used to be a contributing editor before I went to Reader's Digest. Uh, 
And in that analysis, uh, a group of professors uh, from the coastal states on the, on the East Coast concluded that if we could simply roll back all the regulation that had been imposed as a de facto tax and all the mandates that had been imposed, if we could just roll that back, the average American today, average family income would be $330,000. Now, just pause. Let that let that sink in, please. <laughs> let that sink in. Yeah, I mean, you you would be making roughly seven times more money than you're making today. That see that that is another form of tax. Inflation, as we said, the government printing money is another form of tax. You know, you're paid a certain amount of money, and then the money is stolen back from you by the government printing more money off the printing press. And as Ludwig von Mises once famously said, only a government could take two inherently valuable commodities like paper and ink, and by combining them in a particular way, make them both worthless. It, I, I'm again, I'm I'm stunned that we as a nation don't don't make each other aware of it, and then advocate a position against it. You know, is again, you mentioned taxes and theft. It's, it's funny, if, if I took your laptop computer, sir, you would call the police and I would get arrested. But the government comes and takes your laptop computer or computer, uh, it's called taxes. In either situation, guess what? You no longer have your laptop. <laughs> but, or you never are able to get a laptop to begin with. And that's even worse. <laughs> I, I mean, the problem is we had a system, this is what's so frustrating, we had a system that worked beautifully here. We had a gold standard, honest money, small government, low taxes, we had no income tax at all in the country. Well, actually, the first income tax came under Abraham Lincoln. But then Abraham Lincoln also, interestingly, uh, as I like to say, when he became president, one out of seven Americans was a slave. By the time he was done, and part of what he did was to include was to impose military conscription yes. on people of the country. By the time he was done, we were all slaves. That's correct. He, he set the pattern that uh, big government has pursued pretty much ever since. So what we need to do, obviously, is ask, do we really need this big government? Do people who, uh, well, as I say, what, what's been done systematically is the public has been infantilized so that we could have a paternalistic government. The government is the parent. This is something de Tocqueville wrote about. Uh, by the way, you'll also find our books to be a tremendous source of interesting quotes. So we quote the passage that de Tocqueville, the French traveler here, wrote in 1835, predicting that what we would eventually see is the government by a series of tiny little rules that eventually gave it total control over everybody. We all get tied up in the red tape and so on of those rules. Um, we would be turned into a nation of obedient farm animals hmm. by the government. Not by some mass open enslavement, by just, but just by thousands and thousands of little bureaucrats and rules and so on. And it's happened. Look around you. Yes. So, so you cannot go very far on a nation made up of children. And that's what's been systematically created. We have nearly half the population now with their hand out as guinea pigs, just expecting the government to take care of them. 
They no longer care for themselves. They no longer take responsibility for their own lives. But they expect the government to rob us in their, in their behalf and to give them what others have earned. Uh, a society can't go on for a long time like that. No, and, and the progress down. Right, and the progressive agenda is, is always stating that the rich are greedy, but the first cure for greed is to give. So someone who's rich, they didn't just wake up one day and say, I want to be rich. How did they accumulate that? And it's not because they're, they're, um, uh, it was inherited. Most millionaires are first-generation millionaires. So it would behoove anyone with that, with that ideology to say, how did they get that wealth? A, they either had to provide a product or a service, and then they also provide employment. So they're giving. But if they kept it in the bank, here's a, the counter argument I hear is that, well, they keep it on the bank. Well, what does the bank do? They provide fractional reserve banking from that large deposit and give you loans so you can get a car and you can get a house. So before you say that the rich are greedy, please think, think of the entire narrative before you act uh, in a way that is, is, will just magnify your ignorance, I should say. Yeah, in our Baltimore book that people can get absolutely free just by calling 1-800-630-1494, we quote Joseph Sobrin saying, Politicians never accuse you of greed for wanting other people's money, only for wanting to keep your own money. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just full of wonderful quotes like that. Harry Brown, for example, a libertarian hero, an old friend of mine, I want a government small enough to fit inside the Constitution. That'd be perfect. So it's a, it's a great source of, of wisdom and fascinating thought of history, ideas. How many people realize, for example, that uh, the same Justice Taney from Baltimore who handed down the Dred Scott, the notorious Dred Scott decision in American history, and who was attacked by Abraham Lincoln. How many realized that he was married to the sister of Francis Scott Key, who wrote the National Anthem? Hmm. Uh, how many people realized that the grandson of Francis Scott Key was jailed by Abraham Lincoln for criticizing the Union government? I mean, it, it's a fascinating history, and you get all kinds of amazing insights uh, from this book, which is why we love doing them. Well, Mr. Ponte, if I may... Uh, listeners, please do take advantage of this. You're having an opportunity to receive a, a, a jewel. And there's so much wisdom in there. It, and it's, and it's, again, as I pointed out in the beginning of this discussion, it's empirical evidence. It's facts. It's not uh, just just someone just, just throwing out um, um, an argument that isn't there, but it's factual information, and it gives you conclusive evidence to, to everything that he's discussing that we've discussed today, but then it gives you solutions. And that's the most important thing that you must take advantage of is you can have knowledge, but if you don't take the action, then there's no wisdom. So do take advantage of that, uh, the, the free books. The, uh, and if I may, if someone wanted to get more information just from additional from your work, do you have a website, sir? Uh, the book has a website. Okay. I, I want to say the book's website, if I remember it. Let me look. Uh, is the future looks like Baltimore.com. There it is. I knew it was some fraction of that title. A quote from Benjamin Franklin to ponder Make yourselves sheep and the wolves will eat you. <laughs> well, the essence of progressivism is to turn us into sheep, to turn us into those domesticated animals. That is it's sad. And, and it, isn't it, isn't it uh, a slight occurrence here as well? that essentially the world of academia has been swallowed up by progressives. 
so you have this just just the new gener our current generations last three or four generations that come out of the world of academia specifically i would say um in their colleges look at how they think and how they respond to and, and look and look at how they tell you that they are subject to microaggressions and they can, should, must never be forced to listen to any idea different from what they already believe <laughs> how they want to silence everyone on campus who has those different ideas in fact the um the attorney general only yesterday as we taped this interview acknowledged that she had indeed been considering whether she could sue companies that held skepticism about global warming that it should be made a civil and perhaps criminal crime simply to question global warming i mean this is progressivism this is ideas imposed but i do have to say on college campuses even though the children there have been infantilized. Uh, it fascinates me that in simple market logic, an earlier generation would have seen what they were doing at Mizzou, at the University of Missouri, for example, mm -hmm. uh, disrupting the campus, physically threatening students who would not conform to the politically correct line and so on. Uh, and do they not understand that in a year or two or three, they're going to take that college degree that they borrowed $27,000 or more in student loans to get, and they're going to go to an employer, and they're going to stand next to three or four other people applying for the same job, and they're going to say, my degree is from the University of Missouri, and the employer is going to look at them and say, oh, yeah, that university that preaches hatred for capitalism and social disruption. Mm-hmm. In other words, they've destroyed the value of their own college degree by their idiocy. And by the way, applications for students there, I understand, are now down by 20%. Because a lot of kids realize the value of that college degree at that campus has been made almost worthless by these student protests. Yes. Uh, I, I do want to say, though, at university campuses, they do practice diversity. Yes, they do. So the, the diversity, for example, in their faculty is they have teaching on campus uh, a black Marxist, a lesbian Marxist, a transsexual Marxist, a Hispanic Marxist, and so on. The only thing they don't have diversity in is freedom of thought. <laughs> but they have every other kind of diversity, all the politically correct kinds of diversity. Well, they're working on it. That, that will be the rebuttal. Well, this this is the challenge. <laughs> the universities used to be places of free thought. I've never understood why students, when they're taught to rebel, God, I was a college student in the 60s, where we rebelled, we rebelled against the college faculty. And we said, we disagree with them. Today, so-called student rebellion is you get down and lick the shoes, the loafers of the left-wing college faculty. And you conform exactly to how they tell you to think. And that's what passes now for student rebellion. Hmm. I mean, are these kids crazy? Well, they've been made into children. Right. They're almost incapable of thinking anymore. They've, they've spent their lives going usually to government schools, a.k.a. socialist schools. Huh. And so, of course, they're not taught libertarian ideas, as was once true in this country. When schools were controlled locally, uh, they are now taught conformist big government ideas of progressives. They are taught that the founders of this country are evil. 
well, the founders of this country were trapped in history like everybody else. But Thomas Jefferson was at once a slave owner, but he was also a man who tried to abolish slavery. He came within one vote in the Congress of passing a law that would have provided that everyone else, that everyone born after the year 1800 would be born free. He came within one vote of getting slavery uh, destroyed uh, by attrition. Now, admittedly, I, people are not I wasn't aware of that. He, he also was nearly disbarred in, in the colony of Virginia because he defended a black woman in court. And as a white lawyer, he was not supposed to be allowed to do that. Well, you know, it, I, I mean, he has a long history. Of, and of course, he wrote a long passage condemning the slave trade in the Declaration of Independence. And the states of South Carolina and Georgia said, if this is not removed, we will not join the rebellion against Britain. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, these historical facts, which I was unaware of, uh, you know, I'm biracial. So my, my father is black. My mother is German. And we're all biracial. Well, uh, it, it, but mine is more visible. <laughs> so as, as I uh, I grew up in a predominantly, you know, I grew up, I would say, more black uh, because there aren't Germans. Well, 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 you will find that in our books, we massively quote Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, other great black scholars uh, who are libertarians. No, and, 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 and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the reason I share that is during Black History Month, those are facts that it would be great if they were actually shared. And, and Black History Month in February, we actually just we, – we shared the entire picture, not just the left side of the picture. That's really unfortunate, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you shared it with myself and the listeners as well. Well, I mean there, there is so much to learn. But, but the point of libertarianism, Ayn Rand – and I am not necessarily a great Ayn Rand worshiper, but she created some of the most brilliant verbal formulations uh, that anyone has ever done on, on certain libertarian issues, including her recognition that if you are a libertarian or an objectivist, you by definition cannot be a racist. Because just like progressivism, racism is also a collectivist philosophy. It's a philosophy that rejects individuals and views people only as members of groups. We heard recently, for example, Donald Trump accused of being endorsed by David Duke. Well, this is interesting. I once interviewed David Duke on, on my national radio show long ago, and I remember asking him, have you ever known any black people who were smarter than you are? And Duke quite honestly said, yeah, I, I once knew a black man who was smarter than I was in arithmetic and mathematics and another who was smarter than I was at physics. And I then said, well, then why do you persecute them? And what you know, was his answer? I mean, quality is not embodied in groups. Quality is embodied in individuals. So if a so-called race, which I don't even think exists, uh, if you can find one person who is a genius at something, and God knows there have been millions of black geniuses of one kind or another in American history. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all the justification uh, people need, as in, and so they should be honored as individuals, of course. But people should not be viewed as members of groups. That dehumanizes them as individuals. It does. And Ayn Rand did a brilliant articulation of how people need to learn to think that way and not be tricked into these gimmicks that politicians have used ever since the Roman Empire. 
to play divide and conquer. By the way, the Roman Empire, oddly enough, was not particularly racist. Uh, they find that in, in the British, for example, about 1% of, of blue-eyed, blonde-haired British subjects have distinctive African genes in their DNA. And the reason for that is that the Roman legions were completely integrated. The Romans didn't care. If you were a great commander, they didn't care what color you were. If you were a great warrior, they didn't care what color you were. That's correct. Uh, and so there was a good deal of inbreeding or, or breeding with Roman soldiers in the British population 2,000 years ago. And that lives on today in people who think of themselves as tremendously white, but in fact are part African. <laughs> and in fact, most human genes, probably as the scientists say, are African originally. Yeah, it, it, it's just, but it's funny. We, we look at a person's skin tone in their eyes and their hair uh, texture, and we, we do group them. It's unfortunate, and but you realize that, that it is true. We're all interrelated, integrated in, in, in uh, if we go down the path of genealogy, absolutely correct. Well, well, you see, the challenge is politicians want to make us small so that they can be big. And that's why they do these divide-and-conquer group politics things. Uh, they, they try to balkanize the culture. We were supposed to be a culture here where the individuals were big and the government was small. That's not the case that, today. That's what we need to get back to. Yes, I, I certainly hope, and I don't see it in the in the very near future, but it is my sincere hope, and through uh, interviews such as these, and I, I look forward to doing many more with you, sir, is to get that message across so that there will be a future again that, that we recapture our roots and our history as a great nation, and as you just alluded to, smaller government and individuals, not groups and not big government. That's not the solution. As you, if you, you've pointed out throughout this entire interview, it's it, look at the demise, look at the debt, look at your purchasing power, look at you working and saving and doing the right things, and it gets taken away from you. And it's getting taken away from you by who? It's the same entity and everything, right, that, we, that we've discussed so far. It's government. So listeners, take advantage of, of the, the reading opportunities uh, by Mr. Ponte because they're, they're, they're invaluable, and they should be shared generationally. Don't let yeah, the... here, here's a good example from African-American Justice of the Supreme Court Clarence Thomas, who probably now stands as the single brightest person on the court. I don't believe in quotas, wrote Clarence Thomas. America was founded on a philosophy of individual rights, not group rights. But how many and people know that? American voice speaking for our culture. But I mean, it's interesting, even I've never lived in the South, and I'm sure it's much worse there than I envision it. But my impression is, uh, if you were to ask, even a Southern racist, even a Klansman, are African Americans Americans? Are they legitimate citizens here? Hitler would have said no to that about the Jews. But I think even the, the most racist Klansmen here would say, of course black people are citizens. Mm -hmm. I mean, their history here is longer and deeper and has made more contribution to our culture than almost any other people. Of course they're at the very heart of America. 
you know, I'm just nodding my head as I'm listening, and this, and this is coming from, again, not to, to group you into a, a certain category, but this is coming from someone that's not black. So it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that, and, and thank you for sharing that as well. Yeah. Well, Mr. Ponte, uh, I like to close here with uh, just, again, one last time. So what, I, what I'm saying, of course, applies to all races, basically. Yes. Yeah. No, and I, and I agree with that as well. Um, but I, I just I just want to emphasize that because you don't usually hear that coming from another race. It's usually someone advocates what, what their race has done. And again, I know we don't want to get into race in that regard where we're grouped as people, but I'm glad you shared that because uh, most people aren't aware of that. And that was very sincere from you as well. Uh, in closing, I just want to thank you again for joining us today on Proven Improbable. Listeners, one last time, take advantage of it. And please do give us the phone number one last time, sir. Sure. 800-630-1494. To get the free book, We Have Seen the Future and It Looks Like Baltimore, The American Dream versus the Progressive Dream. We use Baltimore to show you one battlefield of that dream. And as you say, uh, another dream war has been fought out in Detroit. Others are being fought out in many other American cities now. And it's destroying the essence of our culture. Well, listeners, hope you're just like I am, and I know you are. Let's get it back. <laughs> let's get America back, and let's restore the roots of, of what this is all about, individualism, capitalism. And uh, again, I thank you so much for your time, sir. Grace, if I may, I want to thank you for you know creating this forum and for having the courage to express ideas that a lot of people would be afraid to, to express. Well, thank you, sir. The information presented on Proven Improbable is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor.